It is to the young that I wish to address myself today. Let the old, I mean of course the old in heart and mind, lay the pamphlet down therefore without tiring their eyes in reading what will tell them nothing. Peter Kropotkin Hello and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism, mutual aid, cooperation, non-domination in your everyday life. I am your host, Graham Culbertson. In this episode of season two, I'm going to indulge myself and read something to you that I wrote in 2021 as I was leaving my job as a teacher of our best and brightest, our most meritocratic youth. I am once again a teacher of meritocratic youth, which has with it so many joys and also the constant awareness of the system that I am in. Now, I myself am particularly partial to some works by Emma Goldman and Oscar Wilde, but if I had to pick, probably I'd still say the greatest work of anarchist theory ever is Kropotkin's Appeal to the Young. I'm not alone in this judgment. It's probably the most read work of anarchism ever, unless you count certain things by uh, Tolstoy or Gandhi or MLK. And frankly, I find the ideas in Kropotkin's Appeal to the Young to be completely true to this day. The argument essentially is that if you think you're going to make the world a better place through the meritocracy, through becoming a doctor or lawyer or teacher or something, you're fooling yourself. And although I think Kropotkin doesn't need to be updated at all, his references are a little outdated, which is to say they refer to the meritocratic institutions and professions of the late 19th century. So here it is, an appeal to the young from everyday anarchism, an affectionate, hopefully useful, rewriting of Kropotkin's classic. Ah, here you are, about to set out on your journey into adulthood. I assume that you are 15 or 16 years of age, just beginning to take your SATs and ACTs and APs and amass your set of Harvard-ready extracurriculars. Perhaps you have been taking such courses and doing such activities since you were much younger. Or perhaps you are one of those few who is still not quite sure about the difference between Princeton and Yale. If so, you have a great deal of catching up to do. I hope you can learn an instrument and sport at the same time, and that those activities don't get in the way of perfect grades and test prep classes. In all likelihood, if you do intend to pursue an elite education, you will have to dedicate your first few years of your career to paying off your loans. I know that you want to go to school to give back. It's your dream to improve the world, to leave it better than you found it, to stop global warming, save the whales, end capitalism, and probably help the bees if no one else has done that by then. But although you want to give back, you'll find yourself giving back to your lenders instead for a while. How long? Well, possibly for the rest of your life. And that is all, of course, without even considering that you might be going to school just to be a winner, just to gain the prestige and wealth and satisfaction of achievement. And you might not even be on such an achievement track at all. If you're not, we'll come back to you. For now, let's assume you're going to college, or have just started college. The more highly ranked, 
the better. So you want to give back. Perhaps you'll become a doctor. After all, there's no better way to give back than to heal the sick and comfort the afflicted. Of course, you could skip the process and just become a nurse, but we all know that young people of your type would prefer to become doctors. And then after years of undergraduate education in medical school, you'll finally begin to practice. Let's imagine that you've become a family doctor or general practitioner, even if you might prefer to imagine yourself as a heroic oncologist or a wealthy cardiologist. A succession of people will come to your office, all sick with preventable diseases. They'll be sick with bacteria resistant to antibiotics because of factory farming, or obese from a lack of exercise and an excess of corporate fast food, or with lung disease from proximity to a freeway, or mentally ill from the strain of unemployment, or suffering joint pain from their warehouse job. What will you prescribe to these people? How will your medical degree help them? You know very well that all they need is what you have. Safety, comfort, choice in activities and diet. Will you prescribe a better diet and more exercise? Do you think they wouldn't like to move to a neighborhood with better air quality? If they had access to that, they wouldn't be in your office in the first place. We could even speculate that they picked up lung disease from, say, using harsh chemicals when they were cleaning your clinic's bathrooms. Not that you employ that kind of worker yourself, Presumably a contractor handles the dirty business of finding someone to take care of your dirty business. Perhaps your next patient will have an entirely different set of problems. Iron deficiency from a fattishly unscientific diet. Stress disorder from too much time spent working as CFO. Achilles tendinosis from overtraining for a marathon. Is this malnourished, overworked, mentally ill winner not suffering from all the same problems as your last patient, except in reverse? Wouldn't the solution ultimately be the same for both of them? An end to the rapacious destruction that is our current economic and environmental system. The winners are healthier than the losers, certainly. But they have their own diseases. Diseases brought about, indeed, from too much lust for success. One of them is sick from too much losing, one from too much winning, both from the system of picking winners and losers. If you're far enough away from your initial intention to give back, You may find a way to reconcile this irreconcilable divide with some simplistic rationalizations. Or better yet, avoid it. If you can end up at the right practice, you can make sure that you're only treating the winners. All it will take, I suppose, is a little more winning in your own career. And then you can treat only your fellow victors and join them for a 5k and a craft IPA on the weekend. But if not, if your belief about making a better world endures, it will turn into action. You will do whatever you can to ensure that everyone has enough. Enough healthy food, enough exercise, enough clean air, enough control over their own life. And the moment you realize that diseases can't be treated by medicine, but must be prevented by creating a more just world, well, then you will have become a socialist. If you really want to treat the sick, make sure everyone has access to all the things that can make a life healthy and worthwhile. That will be your prescription. But perhaps you don't want to be a doctor after all. Perhaps you want a higher calling, one which rises up over these limited concerns and offers up a chance to make an even bigger difference. Perhaps, that is, you want to be a scientist, a chemist, or biologist, or astrophysicist. After all, if you do pure science, you will undoubtedly make a real difference. Pure science always changes the world, even if it takes decades or even centuries before the discovery bears fruit. When you work for science, you work for humanity itself. But is this not just a charming illusion? 
Has science not been captured by the elite as surely as wealth and senate seats have? Consider, for example, science is a field of study. Who gets to ponder the origins of the universe? Who gets to contemplate the ever-expanding realms of biological evolution? Who gets to unpack human nature and culture in psychology and anthropology? Those courses aren't taught in the average high school, or only the most crushingly mind-numbing version of them is taught. The natural world and human culture are fields of infinite wonder and interest, but their academic study is confined to the elites. As for study by regular people, well, imagine someone whose job barely provides them food and shelter, having the time to read and contemplate a brief history of time or silent spring, even if they had the talent, knowledge, and inclination to understand them. Science, as a source of wonder and understanding, is inaccessible to almost everyone. If you devote yourself to it, you're devoting yourself to building more stories on a skyscraper which, while it reaches to the heavens, keeps the masses out behind a gate. And that is only science's transformative knowledge. Think about science as a product. Science creates pesticides which murder bees and enrich stockholders. It discovers medical treatments which are packaged and priced beyond the reach of those who need them the most. It creates new, vibrant living organisms and then deems their very genetic code to be the property of the corporation which employed the scientists who created them. It is the fruit of scientific discoveries which is destroying our air, our water, our soil, our entire biosphere. And that destruction of all the life-sustaining elements of our world enriches the owners of scientific and technical knowledge. Yes, science does and always has borne fruit. But the fruit has been poisonous and will become more poisonous still, so long as it is controlled by and for the few. The moment you realize all of that, you will lose your taste for pure science, the science that is done on the cutting edge, often at the taxpayer's expense, but for the benefit of the rich. Instead, you will seek to democratize science, to make scientists of everyone, to spread the seeds of scientific knowledge as far and wide as possible. There is no reason to have a few scientists rigidly trained and segregated in their ivory tower or biocontainment lab. Everyone can and should be a scientist, and indeed every child is a scientist. What we call science is nothing more than the explorative curiosity granted to human infants. To devote yourself to science is to devote yourself to knowledge, democratic knowledge, to be shared by all. To devote yourself to science is to devote yourself to humanity. To devote yourself to science is to know that all of us are scientists and to help everyone do the science they wish to do. Can you imagine a world in which science is not the province of a few who put their high SAT scores at the service of the wealthy? Can you imagine what we could accomplish if we were all collectively working together to understand the universe? By all means, dedicate yourself to science. But that means devoting yourself to education, cooperation, and democratic effort. It does not mean going from AP chemistry to undergraduate and graduate degrees in biochemistry to a job at Monsanto. What could be less scientific than the pursuit of knowledge to be hoarded and monetized by the few at the expense of the natural world itself? But if you want to be a different kind of scientist in a better kind of world, well, then you've become a socialist. Let's leave our scientists and turn to another option, the law. You might hope to become a lawyer, a passionate champion for justice, a fighter for the little guy. Who could help the oppressed more than a crusading legal reformer? Once you've passed the bar, 
you can be that reformer, that defender of the common weal, that hero of the huddled masses. Let's take a look at what actually happens in the courts of law. Here's a case. A renter is going to be evicted. This seems like a truly immoral event. The renter was an essential worker, after all, whose labor made possible the survival of society during the pandemic. But amidst the economic crush, even with aid from the government, the rent was too damn high. Like I said, morally, it seems clear that we should allow the people who do the essential tasks in society their share of shelter. In fact, the rent has gone up because the area has gentrified, and this tenant was one of the people whose hard work and stable presence made it possible for this area to be so desirable. It thus seems prudent as well as moral not to evict. Don't we run the risk of losing their essential labor if they can no longer shelter themselves? It may be immoral. It may even be imprudent. But from the point of view of the law, there is no controversy. The renter has not paid. Their lease stipulates they must pay or be evicted. So they must be evicted. If they resist, the law in its simplicity stipulates that they can be arrested and confined. That, at least, will solve their shelter problem temporarily. Their hard work kept society afloat. Their civic presence created wealth for the owner of their building. Their reward is homelessness or imprisonment. And all quite legal. So whose side are you on? You must be, if you've made it this far in this podcast, on the side of justice. You must know in your heart that the eviction of this tenant is wrong. Justice demands that this tenant should not only not be evicted, but also should share in the wealth that their landlord expects to gain from this increase in property values. So do you want to stand with the law? If so, you will stand against justice. The same law supports corporations against workers, corporations against unions, the powerful against the weak, the wealthy against the poor. That same law supports the police officer who kills the unarmed suspect. It allows white protesters to carry assault rifles while it assaults black protesters with rubber bullets and tear gas or worse. That law requires poor mothers to work if they want to receive assistance, but it provides tax breaks for private jets. That law allows the pollution of the entire world's atmosphere, but forbids the installation of solar panels and wind turbines when they would reduce property values. The law does nothing to protect those properties from the rising seas, but does protect them from the sight of renewable energy. That's your law, the tool of the wealthy and powerful used to protect their interests at every turn. If you stop and think for just a moment, you'll see that there's another law. The law of justice demands that you feed the hungry, clothe the poor, and heal the sick. From your earliest days you were taught that law, were you not? Do you not believe that everyone deserves help, sustenance, shelter, and the chance to flourish? Is that not the law that vibrates inside of you? I imagine you have been taught, I know I was, that our system of laws protects the deeper, better law. The police and courts and lawyers are there to protect the good and restrain the bad. They exist to make sure that justice is done. After all that's happened in America and in the world in your lifetime, can you still believe that? There is only one law that you must obey, the inner law, the law of conscience. For that obedience to your inner law, the outer law of power will surely persecute you. So be it. You will not be working alone. Join us against the law in the fight for political, economic, and social justice, which legal justice will never deliver. But then, of course, you'll be a socialist, working for a different world entirely. We can turn away from law and imagine that you want to be an engineer. 
You can design wonderful machines, machines that will change the world. But whether these machines are electrical, chemical, mechanical, or even artificially intelligent, will they make the world a better place? Will they reduce labor? Will they reduce suffering? Your beautifully engineered camera will probably just be installed with your colleague's exquisite facial recognition technology to monitor employees to ensure they work like the machines that the owners want them to be. Whatever you create, you won't own it. And your bosses will deploy your creations to bring themselves as much data and money and control as they can. You might even manage, if you're not careful, to create a machine that can do your job. But if you do so, don't expect a life of leisure. The dishwasher and washing machine didn't liberate women from the home. And labor-saving machines won't liberate labor from the workplace. They'll either find a way to extract value and productivity from you some other way, or they'll terminate your contract before you realize what's happening. Or at the very best, they'll give you stock options. But then you'll just be one of them. You'll have joined the ranks of the exploiters, turning your knowledge capital into economic capital and yourself into a true capitalist. You will know it if you study society the same way you've studied your machines. If you analyze the world as a set of systems and processes, you'll see that technological improvement has always benefited the few, not the many. Once you realize this, you'll have a choice. You can either silence your conscience, give up the drive to help that started you on this path, and hope that your work as an engineer will allow the capitalists to exploit so many others that they will let you join the exploiter class where you can stop tinkering with machines and code and start reprogramming society itself. Rebooting it so that it works for everyone, feeds everyone, rewards everyone. Will there not then be many more engineers, all of whom benefit from their own work, just as everyone else benefits from it? And if that is the Society 2.0 that you want to create, well, then you've joined us and become a socialist. The hardest words I have to say are to those of you who want to become teachers. After all, I've been teaching for more than 15 years. Again, I know why you want to become a teacher. You want to give back. You want to share knowledge. You want to mentor and nurture, to delight and amaze, to become the figure who helps and guides young people on their journey into the larger world. You want that because it seems like important and beautiful work. Undoubtedly, you wouldn't be listening to this if someone hadn't served that same role for you. God help me. It might even have been me. But being a teacher doesn't mean guiding young people to find the truths that will make their lives worth living. If you're lucky, it will mean working with some of the smartest and most motivated young people in the world. But for all the delight that they might give you, what are you training them for? You are preparing them precisely for the professions that we have just discussed. Doctor, lawyer, scientist, engineer. How much joy can you take from leading young people on a course that will put them in one of those professions? And insofar as you want to actually teach them, rather than just track them into institutional success, you will be fighting every step of the way. Fighting bureaucracy, fighting the surrounding culture, even fighting their parents and the students themselves. Because while students and parents might want learning, they can't afford to indulge in it. They need the appropriate scores and bureaucratic documentation to get into one of those professions. If you want them to be able to focus on learning, not success, 
you will be rowing against the tide of your entire profession. It could, however, be even worse. If you don't have the chance to work in elite education, the bureaucratic strictures will be much, much worse, because getting the students tracked into economic productivity will be much harder and more brutal. And you will be fighting something else, poverty and despair. Can you get your students on track to achieve success if they are too hungry to focus in class? Will you be able to turn young people whose parents are being evicted into people with the appropriate credentials for law school? Will there be any young engineers from the group that can't do their homework because they are caring for younger siblings while their parents work algorithmically controlled warehouse jobs? If you have brilliant and comfortable pupils, your job will be to arm them for their future lives as exploiters. If your pupils are hungry, tired, and underprepared, you are likely merely providing childcare for their exploited parents up until they reach the age that the state deems that they can personally be exploited. As for you, my aspiring teacher, you will have to go one of two ways. You can give up your dream of freeing young minds and simply work to give your student the best chance in this system, to help them acquire all of the credentials and trappings of success available to them in this system. Or you can hold on to your principles, to all the books and philosophies and friends and mentors who showed you what education can be and strive to uphold those ideals. But then you will be a revolutionary, an educational radical, and before long you will probably be fired, or at least given notice of a need for improvement in your teaching. Then what will be left for you will be a different kind of teaching, the sacred job of sharing your knowledge with all of those who want to bring about a different world. You'll have become, again, a socialist. Finally, what if you want to make art, painting or poetry, filmmaking or playwriting, author or sculptor? Your dream is to turn the world and your experience in it into something that can inspire and enlighten your fellows. But what will await you on the other side of your training? On the one hand will be commercial art. Perhaps you will make advertisements for cancer-causing pesticides or produce reality shows about opulence or write scripts for corporate training sessions. Of course, if you are truly lucky, you might find yourself on that other path, maker of high art. That world is even more commercial than commercial art. Your highest achievement will be finding your painting hanging in the living room of a billionaire or dancing for an audience of plutocrats in London or Moscow or Shanghai. Unless, of course, you hold on to the same ideals that you started with. In that case, you will make art that you will scourge the comfortable and comfort the scourged. You will share, most of all, the afflictions of the world with those who are causing them. Your art will not be about the beauty of the world, but the beauty of the struggle, of the battle to make sure that your ideals will not die, and that those who are suffering will someday find themselves in a freer and more just world. This art if you keep steering by your starry ideals, will not hang in the apartments of billionaires nor animate the advertisements for their products, but it will be immeasurably more valuable. What's the point of all this? I hear you ask. You've told me that I will become an exploiter if I become a doctor and an exploiter if I become a scientist. And you've told me the same for lawyer, engineer, teacher, and even if I set out to become a pure artist. So isn't this all hopeless? Shouldn't I just acknowledge that the world is a terrible place, do my best for myself and my family, and vote for some sensible left-wing politicians along the way? If there's really so little hope, what would you have me do? I'm glad you asked. 
Yes, one option would be to abandon your conscience, or perhaps put it on the shelf and take it out from time to time, when election day comes around, or if you receive a request to donate to a worthy cause. Perhaps you can even try to convince yourself that you can do more good inside the system. I pity anyone whose ideals include standardized testing, legacy admissions, and phrases like partial merit aid. As long as you're not willing to do that, the task is simple. You must transform the world, starting with yourself and then moving from there to everything else. If you are a student in high school, especially an elite student, you must begin by fighting the voice inside your head that tells you your goal is to win. Do not let them measure you, chart you, graph you into a numerical future of ever more strenuous percentiles. Opt out of standardized tests. Don't take the SAT or ACT or AP or IB examinations. Leave all that alone. For elite students in particular, if enough of you make that particular change, you could bring the entire system down before you graduate high school. Elite high school students, all clamoring for their spot at the top, are the fuel on which the entire system runs. And elite undergraduates, the same way for the professional schools. And if enough of you cease to play their game and take their tests, that fuel disappears. You are processing the raw material, your very soul, into the energy source of the machine. If you cease to make yourself fuel, the machine will cease to run. Plan to attend your state research university, or a public regional university, or a community college, anywhere you can get a good education affordably, and avoid all of those who have sacrificed their ideals for a place in the sun. You can do this too if you're currently enrolled in college. Your life is now the fuel for medical, business, and law schools. They won't allow you to practice medicine without a license, so you have to go to med school. Couldn't you aim, though, for a school that might be less prestigious but more rewarding? Or for that matter, could you not become a family doctor instead of a cardiologist? The world could use cardiologists, sure, but it doesn't really need them. If it did need them, wouldn't they be traveling the world healing sick hearts, not waiting in luxurious offices for the wealthy to come bid for their services? Even better, become a nurse. Of course, nurses are poorly treated and poorly paid. Isn't that the problem? Why should you be special and become a wealthy cardiologist, treating the even wealthier, while nurses struggle to pay their rent and afford their groceries? Stop playing their game. Even if you win it, everyone loses. And then you must start the game again if you even contemplate having children. Set your sights lower and lower. Set them so low that all you can see are the people at the bottom. The people desperately trying to survive in a world that has enough for all to thrive. Is there any shame in helping them? Is there any shame in living among them? Is there any shame, indeed, in being one of them? If you set your sights far enough down, you'll find they can't go any lower. But you will also find that they are not pointing down at all, but across. You'll find that the people below you are not below you at all. That's merely a fiction perpetuated by the winners. Look around, you'll see efforts for organization and the fight for justice everywhere. Join in. Join organizations and form organizations. Create unions and co-ops and mutual aid societies to knit neighbor to neighbor until the whole world is crafted into a single beautiful tapestry. The world, in fact, is just waiting to be woven together. In fact, the winners have already woven it together with trade packs and monetary funds and transatlantic flights and trans-Pacific shipping. They've done the hard work of this weaving, or rather we have, 
in their name and for their benefit. All that remains is for us, not them, to benefit from the wealth and power that humanity now controls. As soon as you cease to try to take your place among the winners, you'll see that everything you wanted to win already exists for all. It's merely not available to all. And now you know what you have to do. You have to break down every system that is designed to create an us and a them, winners and losers, the best and the brightest and the worst and the darkest. All of the world's ills stem from this urge to categorize, to sort and track, to segregate and imprison. It is time for you to take your birthright as the product of a world which can split the atom and fly to the moon. It is equally time for you to ensure that that birthright is available to all. You can't do it working as one of the few, even if you do become one of the powerful who tries to work for the people. You cannot work for the people. You cannot even work with the people. You must, in fact, be of the people. Be one of the people. You already are and always have been except that you've been blinded by the gospel of success and taught the importance of winning first and giving back later. There is no giving and there is no back. There is no above and no below. There is no before and there is no after. There is no arc up and there is no slope down. There is no future and there is no past. There is no preparation and there is no implementation. There is only now. There is only a group of people who take and a group of people who share, a group of people who want to win, and a group of people who want all to thrive. Humanity has, over thousands of years and through the course of billions of lives, gained the power to feed the hungry, heal the sick, and understand the universe. You're listening to this now because that's what you want to do. But you cannot do it alone, and you cannot do it by winning a game that demands your ideals if you want to play. So you must change the world, and you must do it along with everyone else. In the words of Peter Kropotkin, All of you who possess knowledge, talent, capacity, industry, if you have a spark of sympathy in your nature, come, you and your companions, come and place your services at the disposal of those who most need them. And remember, if you do come, that you come not as masters, but as comrades in the struggle, that you come not to govern, but to gain strength for yourselves in a new life which sweeps upward to the conquest of the future. That you come less to teach than to grasp the aspirations of the many, to divine them, to give them shape, and then to work without rest and without haste, with all the fire of youth and all the judgment of age, to realize them in an actual life. Then and then only will you lead a complete, a noble, a rational existence. Then you will see that your every effort on this path bears with it fruit in abundance, and this sublime harmony once established between your actions and the dictates of your conscience will give you power you never dreamt lay dormant in yourselves. You may think that you can't do this yet, since you're still in school. You may still be waiting for your life to begin after you finish your degree, or the degree after that, or the one after that. But that's not what school is. It's not a holding area for before life begins. It is life itself, with a real but porous boundary between it and the rest of the world. And who you are in school is who you will be in life. If you are waiting timidly, following orders, and hoping someday to make a difference while you're in school, you will continue to wait timidly and follow orders after school. And you will continue to hope to make a difference until the day you die. If you are content to be a number and a product, 
Moving slowly along a conveyor belt of test scores and grades in school, you will remain just such a passive passenger after school. School is not where you learn what you want to be and what you want to do. It's where you become who you want to be and start doing what you want to do. And if what you want to do is to make a new world, then you can start it right now. All you have to do is believe that another world is possible. The only thing that sustains the old way is belief in it. As soon as enough of us believe in the new world, the old one crumbles. As soon as enough of us work towards mutual aid, mutual aid becomes the only thing one can work for. You are young. You are full of promise and potential. If you seek to use that potential for yourself, you'll end up in league with the most powerful. If you seek to join your fellow humans, you'll benefit everyone, including yourself. All it takes is your belief in your own solidarity with us, and then that solidarity is born. The future is unwritten.